Well, this week we saw the conclusion of the phone hacking trial and the conviction of Andy Coulson and the uh, acquittal of Rebecca Brooks and others. Yet whatever the criminal verdicts, the trial uh, reminded us once again of the general decline in trust in media organisations as a whole due to hacking and also kind of other activities. The Leveson inquiry, if you remember from a year or so back, brought home that point strongly and the jury is still out on whether the new regulations concerning press freedom are going to prove more effective. But that decline of trust in the media is itself only part of a much more widespread diminution of respect towards institutions as a whole. In one sense, that kind of trend started in the 1960s with the end of the, or the beginning of the end of a kind of deference culture. But in the last five years or so, it's really gathered pace. Many public groups or bodies have been held up to scrutiny and found wanting. Uh, The expenses scandal saw the standing of politicians reach an all-time low. The various financial scandals in the City of London have led to a decline of trust in banking and financial services. The reputation of the uh, police has taken a battering recently, uh, for example, over the fabricated comments attributed to Andrew Mitchell, the chief whip. It is, of course, that there are many... True that there may find people working in these professions, and you might be one of them, but the point remains that trust in the institutions as a whole has been eroded. Uh, And what was previously much respected and kind of looked up to is now much less so. And of course, that decline in trust has affected another institution, and that's the church. The stories of sexual abuse perpetrated by clergy have rightly shocked many. And before we just think it's something that happened to the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland, it's happened in the Church of England too. And the accusations that the Church has covered up abuse rather than root it out has affected trust in all institutional churches. We must recognise that trust in the Church is not what it once was. So are we able really to say, I believe in the church? Because that is what the Apostles' Creed asks us to do. If you're visiting or new here this morning, uh, welcome by the way, and let me explain what we're doing in terms of the Apostles' Creed. We're working our way line by line through the Apostles' Creed, which is a very early summary of the Christian faith. Uh, And having looked at what it means to believe in God, the Father who made the world, God the Son, Jesus, who came into our world, died and rose again, ascended, is seated at the right hand of the Father and will one day come again to judge the world. And God the Holy Spirit who gives power to us when we're weak. We look today at what it means to believe in the church. And I think we're all going to agree that given our contemporary context, a phrase like, I believe in the church, needs some unpacking. In fact, it gets a little more complex even than that, because the phrase in the creed is actually, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and that sets a whole set of other questions going. What are we doing talking about the Catholic Church when we're talking to the Church of England? Isn't that like Manchester United fans cheering for Manchester City? And then there's the language of the communion of saints. I mean, if there's one thing you notice about a church like Holy Trinity is that there aren't any pictures or statues of saints around. We don't talk about 
saints praying for us. So, you know, what's all that about? We've got quite a bit of work to do this morning if we're going to understand this, therefore. I'm up for it if you are. Uh, let me explain what we're going to do. First of all, I want to do some big picture stuff on what the church is not and what it is. And I'm going to give you a kind of one-word summary of what I think the church is about. And then we're going to take three words from the creed that we sang earlier and use them to explore what we actually are called to believe about the church today. I'll be referring to Ephesians 4 and Revelation 7 and, and one or two other passages as well. Have your Bibles open. There's a batting order that looks like this in your new sheet um, for you to follow and take note. Uh, and the first thing I want us to notice is what we do not mean by the word church in the creed. The word church, in the way that it's used here, does not refer to an institution or a denomination like the Roman Catholic Church or the Church of England. We're not being called to express our faith in a human organisation. Okay. The church in this context also does not refer to a building like we're sitting in now. Believing in the church is not believing that it exists about bricks and mortar, however lovely they are. And the word church does not refer to a service. Uh, for example, as in, I'm off to church. I mean, it can mean that, but it doesn't here. We're not saying here that we believe in the 9.30. So what is behind the term church here? Well, it's, at its most basic level, the church refers to people. The church refers to people. When the Apostle Paul addressed his letter to the church in Corinth, he wasn't addressing an institution or a building or a service, but people. That's the core understanding of what the church is. But actually that phrase needs further clarification in order for it to mean anything. And we're going to use, therefore, three words from the creed to help us do that. I'm going to suggest we use the word holy to help us see the church as people on a journey. The word Catholic to help us see the church as people with many others. And the word communion to help us see the church as people together round Jesus. And each one has an application for our lives that we'll spell out as we go along. So first of all, what's it mean to say that we believe in a holy church? If holy means pure, I've already suggested in this talk, well, that's not the case. And if you're a Christian here this morning, you'll know that of yourself already, because you'll know you're not always pure. So what's it mean to describe the church as holy? when apparently it isn't. Well, to answer that question, I want to point us to a little sentence at the start of the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. It's on page 1144. 1144. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And just look at it very carefully with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. That's the description that Paul gives of the church. Actually, the translation gets in the way a bit here, because that word sanctified is the same word, or come, is the same root for the word holy. Agios is the Greek word for, for holy, and it, it's the same root that's used in those words. What Paul is actually saying, he's describing the church as made holy in Christ Jesus, and called to be holy. 
How does that work? Well, let's look at the made holy bit first. You see, Paul is saying the church is people who've been made holy by Jesus Christ. Actually, declared holy might be better. But what this describes is what God has done for these people. You see, these people in Corinth were just ordinary people like you and me who louse up from time to time and who, above all, have turned away from God. But they've recognised one important thing, that while they themselves could not be pure and clean, Jesus was. And they believed that Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for their sins in their place so that they could be declared not guilty. And so in turning from trusting in themselves to trusting in God and the sacrifice of Jesus, they've been forgiven and declared holy. Perhaps an illustration will help. And actually, this is taken from our second reading in Revelation 7. You don't need to turn to it. Let me just describe what happens. The writer describes the saints in heaven wearing white robes. What's that all about? Well, these white robes are a symbol of purity and holiness. But they're white because of Jesus. His blood, it says later, that is his death, has made them white. You see, when you and I believe in Jesus, believe that he died for us, and when we come to him asking for forgiveness, it's like we receive a white robe to put on. We're not perfect underneath, but we're declared forgiven and we're declared holy. We will not face condemnation because of the white robe that is given to us by Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be made holy. But the second part is we're called to be holy. We're asked by Jesus to live out what we have been made. We're to become like the one who loved us and saved us. We do this not to earn brownie points with God. We've already been declared holy. But out of love for what he's given us. That's what Paul meant by that phrase in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, when he says... Live a life worthy of the calling you've received. That is, he's saying, just live up to who you are. Live up to God's love and the fact that he made you holy. Okay, so let's let's kind of work out what we're saying here. Describing the church as holy does not mean it is full of perfect people. You'll be glad to hear. Instead, it means the church is full of people who have been declared holy by Jesus and who are called to be holy. That is, it's forgiven people who are on a journey of transformation. The church is broken people who are in the process of being made whole. Now, if you're new here in church today, or perhaps you're just looking, that might come as a bit of a surprise. Because you might be thinking that if the church is taking a stand on moral issues in society, where society has changed its mind, that therefore that means that the church thinks of itself as better than others. But the church is not about people who are better than others. It's about people who have been forgiven, who have been given white robes, and who are on a journey trying to live that out. You see, describing the church as holy is not a claim for superiority. It's a recognition that we needed someone to make us holy. 
and that we're on a journey with him, praying to be changed by the Holy Spirit day by day. Now, if that's true, if that's what it means to describe the church as holy, let me just talk to a couple of people here, if this is you. It may be that you're thinking that there is something in your life that disqualifies you from being part of the church. And if that's you, think again. Because you don't have to be perfect to start a journey with Jesus Christ. Your lifestyle, or your choices, or your income, or your past, or your present, none of that matters. You just need to recognize that Jesus has something that you need. He's the only one who can make you holy. And if you start that journey, you won't be joining a perfect community. You'll be surrounded by people who want to be holy, but who are making mistakes on the way. The holy church is a church of people who recognize they need something, and are on a journey living that out. But it may be that you'll think you've actually already arrived. You're the type of person who, when it comes to the confession week by week, you actually find it hard to think of anything you've done wrong. You you can think of things that other people have done wrong, often the people sitting next to you in church perhaps, but you're pretty much there. I, I would say to you, if there's one sign that you haven't arrived, it's the belief that you have. Holiness, you see, is not about the avoidance of certain little sins, but a wholehearted desire for God, a worthy response to the one who laid down his life for us. You see, we're called to be holy. That is a desire for God in every day. It may be that you're somewhere in the middle, and you're thinking, well, I am on the journey, but I I struggle to get there. I would just say to you, look at those two points. Look at how you've been declared holy. You've been given a white robe. That won't be taken away from you. And have a look at where you're going, which is cool to be holy. And just keep going day by day and ask the Holy Spirit to change you. That's what it means to believe in a holy church. Not a group of perfect people, but people on a journey. Secondly, the church is Catholic. And I'm going to suggest that means we are a people with many others. You see, the word Catholic just comes from the Greek word katholikos, which means universal. You know, somebody somebody who has very Catholic tastes doesn't mean to say he likes going to Mass a lot. It means he's kind of very broad in his appreciation. So so that's what Catholic means. So when we say we believe in the Catholic Church, small c, we're not saying that we believe in the denomination, the Roman Catholic Church. But rather we say we believe in the universal people of God through history and throughout the world today. You you get a bit of a sense of that in that description we had from Revelation 7. Uh, In verse 9 we said, we hear of a, a great multitude which no one can count from every nation, tribe, people and language. The picture here is just of kind of a sheer scope and reach of the church across every border and division. Uh, Therefore, to say that we believe in the Catholic Church means a couple of things. It certainly means that we believe in a church that is for everybody, as we've just explored. It's not for perfect people. But it also suggests something else. For me, it reminds me that I need to lift my eyes beyond the local boundaries of 
HTC and Clogate and actually look at the church throughout history and throughout the world because the church is Catholic, universal, throughout history and throughout the world. Let's take history first. When I was taught this at college, it was called church history, which sounded impossibly dull. Um, but it's not, it's hugely exciting because it's the history of God's people. It's what God has done through people for the last 2,000 years. Uh, uh, it is the story of people who have lived the faith, who've run the race, uh, and it's hugely inspiring. I, I find the people of the Reformation particularly inspiring. People like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English for the first time and was killed for doing so. People like Archbishop Thomas Cranmer, whose passion was to bring the Bible back into the heart of the church's worship. People like Bishop Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake with Bishop Nicholas Ridley and said as the flames started to lick around their feet, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. You can go to the stop in Broad Street in Oxford where that happened. There's a great set of books for children called Trailblazers. There's a couple of examples here. They're on the bookstall. that tell the stories of great men and women of faith from the past. Missionaries, doctors, politicians, preachers, always inspiring and sometimes sobering stories. We've given them to Sam. He absolutely loves them and kind of devours them. And I just thank God that he's getting a sense of the Catholic Church, the universal church throughout history. I think there is some irony that in our data-rich society, we know perhaps less about the people of God in the past than ever before. So can I encourage you this summer to find a good Christian biography about somebody in the past who's no longer alive and read it. Find somebody, perhaps, who's in your line of work or calling. There'll be a biography about somebody in your line of work, I'm sure. If there isn't one on the bookstore already, just have a word with me and I'll suggest one. It's part of what it means to believe in the Catholic Church, which is to recognise what God has done in the past and to learn from it. But it's not just about the Catholic Church kind of then in the past. It's also now, the church that stretches across the world. It's the most amazing truth, you know, that throughout the world today, in virtually every country, there'll be people in gathering together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. In different languages, in very different surroundings, some under little tents, some in secret, some in mega churches, but all worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a glimpse of this when um, I went to Cape Town uh, for the Lausanne Congress in 2010. And I'll never forget that final worship service with 4,000 people from across the world, pretty much every country, reckoned to be the most diverse gathering of Christians ever assembled in the history of the world. And we sang songs from, in all sorts of wonderful languages, we, we shared communion together and then we gathered together to sing, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon the throne, or hail, redeemer, hail. And just that sort of sense of being with God's people across the world, who I won't see again till glory. The church is not just what's going on here. It really is throughout the world. So, so I guess my, my encouragement to you is to really engage with that Catholic church, that church throughout the world. Why? 
Well, first of all, that church needs our prayers. People like Miriam Ibrahim, who was rearrested this week uh, for trying to leave Sudan. Her crime was to marry a Christian. Although she's in the U.S. Embassy now, her, her fate is far from certain. People like Christians in the Middle East, who are at the sharp end of virtually every conflict, whether in Iraq, Syria, or Palestine and Israel. I know a number of us wrote letters to persecuted Christians through Christian Solidarity Worldwide that we talked about at Easter. If you haven't done that yet, uh, it's still on your to-do list. It's not too late. Let's keep praying, because they need our prayers. But the second reason I think we need to engage with the church throughout the world is we need their example. We need their example of standing firm in a changing world. Next week we're going to hear from Simon and Kath Winchcombe, who are back from their work in the Middle East, about how Christians are kind of standing up for their faith in a very difficult environment there. See, I don't think we can just say we believe in the Catholic Church without actually engaging with what God has done in the past and what he's doing in the world today. I think that's what it means to say I believe. Okay, we've seen the church's people on a journey. We've seen the church is Catholic, it's with many others. Let's see finally how it's a church, people gathering together around Jesus. And the word I want to highlight is that word communion. It's true that some traditions, in some traditions, the phrase communion of saints is taken to refer to particular people in heaven who can intercede for those on earth. That's not the only reading of the phrase, and I don't think it's a biblical one by any means. I think we saw earlier that saints describes all Christians, people who've been made holy, and therefore the communion of saints for me is just another way of describing the church. It's people who are gathering together. And that word communion helps us in one particular way. It comes from the same root as the word common, and it describes people coming together around something in common. So here it describes Christian believers coming together around Jesus Christ. Uh, That's what Paul is emphasising in all that kind of one language of Ephesians 4, one church, one faith, one baptism. But the thing that that phrase communion of saints really emphasises is the kind of togetherness of believers. Yes, this is people who individually believe, but it's their togetherness that we're really talking about in the creed. And I suggest we really need to hear that clearly, and let me tell you why. I think we live in a really individualised society and that affects even strong communities like Claygate's. And so in, a, in an individualised society, people tend to see their faith as something primarily individual. So they talk about my faith, my beliefs, my spirituality. And expressing that faith corporately by being part of a church is kind of seen as an optional extra. Just for the keenies, you know, there's faith and then there's belonging. But the two are different. But that's not how it's seen in the Bible. The Bible sees faith as something both individual and corporate, not one or the other. It is about a personal response to Jesus Christ. But it's one lived out in fellowship with other believers. Because it's in fellowship, it's in being together, it's in communion with other believers that God often works most powerfully. It's in worship with others that God comes among his people. It's in prayer with others that God lifts our eyes to him. It's in learning with others where God kind of sharpens our thinking. 
And it's in suffering with others where God shows us his arms of love. Tim Keller, who's a respected New York pastor, says, there is no more important means of discipleship, that is the formation of Christian character, than deep involvement in the life of the church, the Christian community. And we're going to see that today as we celebrate Holy Communion with all the children as they come back in. You see, you and I could break bread and drink wine at home. But in coming together around the table physically, but around Jesus spiritually, I hope it's been your experience as it has been mine that we find God warming our hearts. That we find him consoling us, encouraging us, even challenging us through the presence of others, our brothers and sisters in faith. It's sometimes said, you've probably heard this, you can be a Christian and not go to church. Yes, you can, theoretically. You can also play cricket with only one hand holding the bat. Colin Cowdery did it once. That's because he'd broken the other arm. But, but, but I wouldn't recommend it because that's not how it's meant to be done. See, God's plan is for God's people to come together in communion and fellowship. And when we say the creed, we believe that's the case. Now, if we really believe that, I think that probably challenges the priority we give to our times of community as a church, be that in a small group or Sunday worship. I wonder if those sorts of things go in the diary first, or do we just do them if there's nothing else on, if there's a bit of a blank? And let me say a word particularly to parents of younger children. You may be aware that as your children get older, there will be more for them to do on Sunday mornings. Uh, sport is the, only, is the most major activity, but it's not the only one. Can I encourage you to think really carefully before simply deciding to go with the cricket or the football over church? Because the message you'll be giving to your child is that it's okay to be a Christian and not part of a regular worshipping and learning fellowship. And once they've received that message, the evidence from this church and others is that they don't come back. And without regular nurture, their faith stays at the age of a six-year-old. Now, you might want to say you don't want to put your child off faith by making them go to church. I understand that. But my hope is that within your family, being part of a church isn't something you have to do anyway. But it's actually a great blessing of Christian faith to be with other believers. In our family, Annabelle and I want to set an example that church isn't something we just do because daddy's the vicar. Because it's a central part of what it means for us to belong to Jesus. To belong to his people. We want to give priority to being with God's people because God matters to us and his people matter to us. I guess that's my message for us this morning. Not just that, but all that we've looked at. When I, we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, we're not saying that we believe in an institution, but in something that God is doing among his people. Because you see, by God's grace, we have been made the church made holy by Jesus and called to be holy, with many others throughout history and the world today, and coming together around Jesus. 
So let me just give you some questions to, to mull on as we finish. Question number this. Question number one is this. Will you see that there's space for you in the journey of God's people? Whatever your background, whatever your lifestyle, because Jesus died for you so you could be declared holy. If you're here this morning and just exploring or looking, that's great. But there is space for you in the journey of God's people. Question number two. Will you see that journey continuing? And will you take seriously the call to holiness? As you recognise that where you are is not where God wants you to be. But ask daily for the Holy Spirit to change you from within. That's what we're called to be, a holy church. Question number three. Will you engage with the Catholic Church, the universal church, by learning from the saints of the past and by praying for and learning from the worldwide church today? And question number four. Will you give priority to the communion of the saints? That is the fellowship of God's people, God's plan for worship, learning, and reaching the world with the love of God. Because, you see, unlike the other institutions we looked at earlier, the church does not exist for itself. It exists to bring the good news of God in Jesus Christ to bear in our world. But it's only when we are the church effectively, holy, Catholic, and a communion, where we make that possible. I'm up for that journey. I hope we are too.